spirit of faith according to what is written, I believe and therefore I spoke. We also believe and therefore speak, knowing that he who raised up the Lord Jesus will also raise up, raise us up with Jesus and will present us with you. For all things are for your sake, that grace, having spread through the many, may cause thanksgiving to abound to the glory of God. Therefore, we do not lose heart. Even though our outward man is perishing, yet the inward man is being renewed day by day. For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. While we do not look at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporary, but the things which are not seen are eternal. For we know that if our earthly house, this tent, is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. came together again so that they could not so much as eat bread. But when his own people heard about this, they went out to lay hold on him, lay hold of him. For they said, he is out of his mind. And the scribe who came down from Jerusalem said, he was, he has built a boat, and by the rule of the demons, he cast out demons. So he called them to himself and said, again in parable. How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that And if Satan has risen up against himself, himself and is divided, 
saying, who is my mother or my brother? And he looked around in a circle of those who sat about him and said, here are my, here are my mother and my brother. For whoever does the will of God is my brother and my sister and mother. These are the word of God for the people of God. Please be seated. In the book, The Clown in the Belfry, Frederick Beatner tells about speaking at a, a 200th anniversary of a, of a church, and during his message, Beatner told of the, the history of the church and the various work that had been done in the church over the years. And one story was about a particular addition to the church. It was a, a steeple with a bell in it. And the steeple constructed the bell in place. Something extraordinary happened in the history of the church. An agile, Lyman Wood stood on his head in the belfry with his feet toward the heaven. No one knows anything else about Lyman Wood but that. But Beekner says that's all one needs to know. For in that wild, crazy act, the whole mission of the church was dramatized. When Jesus Christ is really Lord, everything gets turned upside down. Everything goes topsy-turvy. He says the early church walked on the wild side. They were known as those who turned the world upside down. Well, in our gospel story today, if you ask the Sadducees, if you ask the Pharisees, if you even ask Jesus' family, Jesus may as well have been standing on his head. It's a fascinating piece of gospel. As a child in Sunday school, I can remember my teacher's telling me to be more like Jesus, but I never, ever remember them using this passage of Scripture. Our gospel story tells us after a long day of healing people from their illnesses and disease, Jesus goes to a, a particular house in Capernaum. He wants to find some rest, get some food. But the crowd of people followed Jesus, and they were so intent being near him that neither he nor his disciples could find time for a meal. You see, ever since Jesus returned from the desert, he began preaching and teaching and healing at a frantic pace. And there were those who were watching Jesus, all he was doing, all he was teaching. And they began saying, he has gone out of his mind. My Sunday school teachers never told me that. The religious experts they were already concerned with Jesus healing folk, particularly on the Sabbath, which was an act of disobedience to the scriptures. They were offended when he forgave people of their sins because they knew full well only God could do that. So they had to make a diagnosis. And they diagnosed Jesus with being possessed by Beelzebub, the prince of the demons. When Jesus' family, his mother and his siblings got together, to go find Jesus. And I'm sure a couple of things are going through their minds. First of all, they're concerned about Jesus because they love him very much. And secondly, they're just embarrassed. Their family's reputation's in jeopardy, and it says they needed to get Jesus under control. They needed to restrain him, it says. So standing outside the house where Jesus was, they began calling for him. And the word got to Jesus that his mother and his brothers and sisters were asking for him. So... To accentuate the point that Jesus has lost his mind, Jesus asks, who are my mother and my brothers? 
and then he began looking at those sitting around him. Those who were misfits and those who were marginalized along with his faithful but clueless disciples at this point. And he said, here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does the will of God is my brother and sister and mother. So, along with the frantic preaching and teaching and healing, Jesus now redefines the relationship of family. And in doing this, he doesn't disrespect the love of his biological family. He loves them. But what he is saying is that our definition of family is just too small for the, the, the embracing and the, um, the expansive love of God. The Lord's table is a large table, and there's room for everyone. And this is not the first time Jesus did this. If you remember, um, Mary and Joseph took the family to the Passover in Jerusalem. And the parents, at the end of the Passover, rounded up the family and headed back home. And it says the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem, but his parents didn't know it. They probably thought he was hanging out with some kids and other families, but soon they discovered Jesus was nowhere to be found. So discovering this, they went back to Jerusalem, and for three days, think about it now, for three days, they looked for, they looked for Jesus, only to find him in the temple with, in conversation with the temple teachers. And here's the thing. When they found Jesus, I can only surmise that Jesus was just enthralled with the conversation he was having with the temple teachers because he did not seem to be concerned at all that his parents had been looking for him. Jesus' parents asked why he had treated them this way. And then Jesus asked them, why were you looking for me? Now think about it. Uh, I'm your parent. That's why I'm looking for you. And at age 12, he begins redefining family because he asks, did you not know that I must be in my father's house? They had no idea what he was talking about, but they just know he was a little different. The people in Capernaum, said Jesus had gone out of his mind. And not to be too hard on the religious experts, on the, the, the family of Jesus, some of the things Jesus said, they were a little crazy sounding. You see, the people in Capernaum were used to the religious teachers teaching them what the laws of God were and how to keep the laws and the consequences of breaking those laws. And then here comes Jesus telling stories, crazy stories, perplexing parables about God and what it meant to do God's will by saying things like whoever wants to be great among you must become servant he said the last shall be first and the first shall be last whoever finds his life will lose it and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it and then he said this unless you change from your, your stunted adult thinking and become innocent and creative like a little child you really will never understand the kingdom of God. To be sure, they must have thought he was out of his mind. Remember that crazy sermon on the mountain that he preached? That sermon where he said things like, blessed are the poor, blessed are those who mourn and grieve, blessed are those who are persecuted, blessed are the hungry and thirsty. I can only imagine the first response of people hearing that for the first time is, Jesus, if this is blessing, I don't know if I can handle it. And if this wasn't enough, where the religious teachers had been teaching the Torah, they taught that there was an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. 
In other words, however I have been wounded by you, you will be wounded in the same way as punishment. And then Jesus, he goes around saying, love your enemies, bless those who curse you, pray for those who despitefully use you. And if you remember, after he received the death penalty from um, Pontius Pilate, hanging on a Roman cross, even praying for the people who were executing him, he said, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. But you know, truth be told, after hearing these crazy stories for a while, after hearing those perplexing parables, and the people begin ruminating and meditating and praying about those teachings of Jesus, they began to behave a little crazy themselves, didn't they? That early church did. They began loving their enemies. They began being concerned with the welfare of their neighbors before their own. Tertullian, an early church historian during that time, said, see how these Christians love one another. The Apostle Paul, who, by the way, people thought he was a little crazy too, he begins talking to them about, he said, had the same mind in you that was in Christ Jesus. In other words, had the mind in you that people said Jesus was out of his mind. But Paul said, let the same mind be in you, in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, didn't regard equality with God, but emptied himself, taking the form of a slave. And being found in human form, he humbled himself even to the point of death. Paul taught the early church not to be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewing of their minds to have the mind of Jesus. In our 11 o'clock worship this morning, we're fortunate to be able to remember and honor our, our graduates. We're mindful of them. So graduates, I want to say a word to you, whether you're graduating from high school or college or graduate school. You've been given the gift of education and learning, and you now have ahead of you, in some way, shape, or form, you have ahead of you new opportunities. What you do with those opportunities is real important. The question to what will you devote your life is before you. Now, July 4th is just a couple of weeks away, right? And I love July 4th. I love Randall Thompson and Aaron Copeland's music during that time. And we'll hear the Constitution say we have unalienable rights of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And this is a wonderful thing. In fact, it's a good thing. I know if you've been planning for your future, you've probably been told to do something that makes you happy. I'll say to you what I said to my daughter at her graduation. Happiness is overrated. You see, you're happy until you're not, right? But if you have a life of authenticity, if you search and go for a life of meaning and purpose, that's the meat and potatoes of, of living a, a full life. And graduates, we need you. We need you to remind us of what it means to live fully and holy. We need somebody in this graduating class to be a lime and wood, willing to stand on your head in the church belfry with your feet turned toward the air. Living this way is the real gift of a full and meaningful life. It means you're not ruled by fear. You're not ruled by anxiety. Living a full and meaningful life means letting go of what others expect you to be and having the courage to be your true, authentic self. It means because you know that you're loved by Jesus, you can get up each morning with a robust faith, with the mind of Christ to bring God's kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. 
The African-American educator, philosopher, theologian, Howard Thurman said, don't ask what the world needs. Ask what makes you come alive and then go do it. Because what the world needs is people who have come alive. Graduates, we need you. The church needs you to have the faith of Jesus, to muster up the courage, to have the mind of Christ in your learning and in your living. Honestly, we need you to be a little crazy. We need you to color outside the lines, to march to a different beat, and then do it in such a way that makes us want what you have. One of my favorite musicals is Man of La Mancha. If you know the musical, you know there's a story about Don Quixote, a man with Christ-like figures, be sure he's a man people think is out of his mind. Along with his faithful companion Sancho, Quixote thinks that he's a knight on a noble quest. He warns Sancho that, the, uh, that they're always in the danger of being attacked by Quixote's mortal enemy, the Enchanter. Don Quixote, in one scene of that play, sees a windmill, and he thinks it is a four-armed giant, so he attacks it. He enters a common tavern and thinks it is a castle. And there is a, a prostitute there named Aldonza. And he sees that she is his lady. He names her Dulcinea, which means sweet one. Throughout the musical, Don Quixote seems to be acting like he's out of his mind. He sees the world differently than others see it. There's a soliloquy in which he says, when life itself seems lunatic, who knows where madness lies? Perhaps to be too practical is madness. To surrender dreams, this may be madness. To seek treasure where there is only trash. Too much sanity may be madness. But maddest of all is to see life as it is and not as it should be. And then in the, in the end of that, that um, play, there's a one line that gets lost, but it's so powerful. Dulcinea asks, Quixote, why do you keep doing such crazy things? And he says, I hope to add some measure of grace to the world. Graduates, the, the world needs you. The church needs you to see the world differently. We're to see the world with the mind of Christ, and we need you to remind us that we are loved by the Christ of our God. We need you to remind us that we can seek treasure where those who are marginalized in society and discarded by the world are. Where the society teaches us that we always have to behave in an orderly fashion, we need you to remind us that sometimes faith looks a little crazy. But by being authentic in our living, we might add some measure of grace to the world. In congregation, as our graduates make their mark in the world, following a long line of graduates before them, I ask us to what is God calling us at Aldersgate? Where is God calling us to be a little crazy with our faith? Where is God calling us? Where is God calling you to stop asking what the world needs and to ask what makes you come alive? And in finding out what makes you come alive, how you can share God's love with others. Let us pray. Lord Jesus, help us not to be put off by you. You walk and talk in ways that sometimes makes us a little uncomfortable. You make demands upon us that sometimes seem impossible. And sometimes we get confused at what you're saying. But Lord, give us grace 
to hear you and when you speak and to receive you and to faithfully follow you as you really are and not just who we'd like you to be. And we pray this prayer in the name of Jesus Christ. He who reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. I invite you to stand and let us together 